We're going to take a few moments to quiet our hearts, quiet our spirits, prepare ourselves to receive God's Word today as we move into our, our time of study. And so as we do that, just take a minute, take a deep breath, let all the cares and concerns of the day, of the world, just set them aside. They'll be there when we're done. They're not going anywhere. Just set them aside. And listen as I read. On the third day, he separated the water from the dry land. The seeds he planted burst their shells and covered the deltas and prairies and hills. On the third day, he showed up at a wedding and turned water into wine, saving a family from disgrace, giving his disciples a glimpse of his glory, and transforming for all of us what it means to be clean. On the third day, he showed up again, this time resurrected and utterly transformed, just like he had transformed the earth, the wine, and all of us who, like seeds, had finally found welcoming soil, like wash water turned into wine. Really glad you're here this morning. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. I get to lead the teaching team, which is an incredibly humbling gift for me. We're really glad you're here if you're visiting with us today. Um, all of our information you can find out is on our website. We have a great website, comprehensive, and each week we produce a learning guide along with that that you can find there to follow along and take the note, take notes, or go back or review something. Um, we take very seriously the call for every believer to study and to work through what God's Word means uh, personally. I don't want you to trust anything I say just because I say it. Just because I have the microphone. But we study together. We come together in community, and we wrestle through these things together. So thank you for being here. The Learning Guide is what helps facilitate that. You can find that on the website. Uh, any of those who have known my, any of you who've known my wife for any length of time, know that when the girls were little, Jane Ray loved throwing birthday parties, and these were meticulously planned productions, all done on a shoestring missionary family budget. There were fiestas with piñatas, there were cowgirl roundups with horse rides, there were drive-in movie takeovers with overflowing gummy bears. But the classic, the classic was the treasure hunt. Jane would spend hours and hours thinking up clues and making maps and burning the edges and writing the script in and coming up with clues for everything. She would plan it all down to a T. And it would all pay off when Wilson Park was filled with girls dressed like princesses or pirates, levitating with excitement. 
With each solved clue, the frenzy would escalate even further until finally the treasure was found. And in the mixture of anticipation and elation and sugar, they would just erupt into a shower of sparkling giggles. And in this way, John, the apostle, John, the author of the letters we study, is much like Jane Ray. They both like treasure hunts. They both like laying out the clues. They both like building anticipation towards a treasure that will just cause awe. John writes his whole book, That We Might Believe. That's why he constructs the story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the way that he does is he's leading us through a process and he's going to give us clues he calls them signs but he's going to give us clues so that we will be drawn in and our anticipation will build and we'll and we'll learn to anticipate what comes next and we'll learn to ask questions about what's happened But it's not just dry doctrine that he's given us. He didn't just drop down a list of precepts or principles about Jesus. No, he invites us into this story. Because ultimately, when we engage our active gospel imaginations, when we become part of that story, then we, like the disciples, find ourselves transformed. So pray with me as we begin our study. Jesus, we're here. You've gathered us here to hear your word so that we might be transformed more into your likeness, not just for the sake of more information. So God, give us those active gospel imaginations. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to know and to respond to your word, to your spirit, to your presence. All for the glory of God. Amen. Listen, weddings were a big deal. I was taught, you, you heard me talk to the kid. Weddings were a big deal in Jesus' time. Much bigger in a way than what we see now. These, these events would go on for, for a week in some places. And everybody was invited to take part. It wasn't just, there was no small family affair. These were, these were the things that the parents would save up a lifetime to have this wedding. And they would include everybody, and it was a sign of their hospitality and their character. It wasn't just how rich you are or how poor you are, but this was a sign of their character, of how well they treated people with hospitality during the weddings. And at the center of it was the wine. As one rabbi said, there is no joy without wine. So if a family ran out of wine, this was worse than just a social faux pas. This wasn't just a, oh, rats, sorry. No, this would affect their social standing. This would bring tremendous shame upon the entire family if something like that were to happen. Not only that, it was also seen as a very bad omen for the couple being married, that their relationship would be cursed by something like this happen. So this was a huge deal that people spent years preparing for. 
Now, we don't know why Mary was invited. Cana of Galilee is not that far from Nazareth. She could have known the family. She could have just been that this was a, a particularly wealthy family that stretched out. She could have been related. Or she could have just been hired to be one of the servants. We know that Jesus' upbringing was very humble. She could have just been kitchen help for the wedding to serve. But whatever it was, she was intimately knowledgeable about the situation of the refreshments. Jesus comes, he shows up, he brings with him his disciples. He may have been the reason they ran out of wine. They weren't planning on Jesus and his disciples showing up. But he was there. Mary realizes that this thing is going to happen, this, this, this catastrophe. Well, let's get into the text. It says, Now on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no wine left. Jesus replied, Woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. His mother told the servants, Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, John mentions Mary only twice in his record. Both times Jesus calls her woman. He mentions her here at the very beginning of his ministry and then at the cross ending. Mary is the sole figure in all of Scripture that we know was present for the entire span of Jesus' time on earth. She is the one who knew him more intimately. She is the one who sang the songs over him when he was a baby. She is the one who believed in him before anyone else believed in him. Mary had become accustomed to watching Jesus. She had become a student of her own son. She was so attuned with who he was that I believe in some ways she could anticipate what he was going to do. And I think that may be the situation here. She knew her son's heart. She knew what he was about. She knew what concerned him. She saw the situation and she thought, well, of course he's going to do this. That's who Jesus is. Jesus will take care of this. Now, I know as, as Protestants and as evangelicals, and you know, we have a, a long history of not worshiping Mary, and we don't. We, we don't do that. But I think sometimes in our zealousness to move away from that, Mary has gotten the short shrift. Y'all, we need to learn from Mary right here. We need to see what Mary sees. We need to practice watching Jesus like Mary did. We need to become so accustomed to fixing our eyes on Jesus that we ourselves begin to even anticipate. 
we get in a situation, we go, well, of course Jesus would do this. Well, of course Jesus would be there. We need to learn from Mary. Last week we asked the question, what do you want? It's a question Jesus asked his disciples. It's the question we ask ourselves because I believe God asked us, what do we want? And we talked about how there is no knowing without following. That our model is, hey, well, we want to see something or hear something. We want to understand it intellectually. We want it to make sense to us. We want it to be rational. And then we'll obey or then we'll understand, maybe. But the choice will, you know, we'll hold that choice in the end. We've talked about it numerous times at Grace Church, and we hit on it again last week, is that that's not the model in the Bible. That is not a model that works in discipleship. That is not a model that transforms us into the image of Jesus. Instead, the model that's presented in the Bible is see or hear, and then do it, obey, follow, and then understand, maybe. There's no guarantee. I've just been reminded again this week that even if I do everything right, even if I check all the boxes, even if I perform all the activities, even if I answer all the questions correctly, there's no guarantee it's going to work out like I think it's going to work out. I'm not in control, no matter how desperately I want to be. Jesus invites us to follow and understand, maybe. And it's easy to follow Jesus, as long as he does what we want him to do, right? It's easy to obey, as long as it fits our concept of what we should be doing. Because we're focused on ourselves. Again, Mary says, watch Jesus do what he tells you to do. The text goes on. Now there were six stone water jars, much larger than this. As I said, I think this is five gallons. So the smallest would have been three times this size. The largest, six times this size. These were jars that were used for ceremonial washing, for the bathing, for the baptizing. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons, Jesus told the servants, fill, water, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the very top. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward. And they did it. These jars, it's significant, these jars were for cleansing, for making the people clean. And Jesus is indeed going to make people clean, but in a very different way with this. See, Jesus is not just transforming water into wine, but he's transforming what it means to be clean. He's transforming even what it means to be joyful in this one miracle. Water washing will be done away with as that sign as we become washed once and for all by the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When the head steward tasted the water that had been turned to wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
He called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. You have kept the good wine until now. And I love this little aside. Don't, don't miss the significance of this seemingly throwaway line that the head steward knew, or didn't know, but the servants knew. Jason Hood, in his book, Imitating God in Christ, writes this. He says, unless Christians are taught that God's work and human works are compatible, they often believe that in any given thought or action, either God is at work, is at work or humans are at work, but never both. The relationship between God's work and human work is arguably the most misunderstood aspect of discipleship. Our society puts, gives honor and people who are vocational ministers and missionaries, that's supposed to be super spiritual and only super spiritual people can do that kind of thing. And that religious things like showing up for church or going to community group or, or going on a mission trip, man, that's, that's religious stuff, but the everyday changing diapers and paying bills and drawing up architectural plans or making art, well, that's, that's, that's the human stuff. Nothing could be more untrue. God is constantly inviting. It is the M.O. of God to invite us in to participate with him so that our works become God's work. So that in everything that we're doing, changing a tire, making a bed, brushing our teeth, everything becomes infused and transformed with God's glory. We just rarely see it goes on and says, Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs. Remember, John is leading us on a treasure hunt. Here's sign number one in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed with him. As I said earlier, John is clear in his purpose about what he writes about Jesus. He writes it so that we might believe. And he does this in a number of creative ways. There's a lot of different analogies you could use. Treasure hunt is just one of them. But all of them are leading us to think critically and imaginatively about this. More than any other book, John invites us to be part of the story, to put ourselves in the story. The question that Jesus is asking, the questions that he continually asked, are the one, that's what he's asking us. And he's not looking for rhetorical questions. They're not rhetorical questions. He's not looking for hypotheticals. He's putting us in real situations to asking this. And we have to see that as we watch Jesus, we see him revealing himself by serving. This is, Jesus is just like any other, he's, he's unlike any other God that you read about. All the other gods, when they reveal their glory, it's like they step out behind the shadow and they've got their armor on, right? I mean, King Richard coming back from battle dressed as a pauper. 
When does he reveal his glory? When he takes it off and everyone realizes he's the king and he steps up and to rule the nation. Not Jesus. Jesus literally, behind the scenes, only the servants know, quietly saves a family from catastrophic social shame by serving. That's how Jesus reveals his glory. Is he goes to the sinner. He goes to the servants. He goes to the various holes on this earth. When you think about it, when you think about Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, what a difference. He didn't wait for us to become washed. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to be the good guys and then come. He didn't wait for us to have it all laid out and have it all perfect where there was no chance that we were going to run out of wine. No. Jesus came in the midst of our shame in the midst of our filth, in the midst of our screw-ups, Jesus walks into that and he serves us and he transforms it. And he transforms us in the process. See, when Jesus shows up, things and people change. The space between heaven and earth becomes thin. Now, we rarely recognize this when it's happening. And unless we slow down, we often miss them altogether. So often we run around frantically trying not to mess up, trying not to run out of things, trying to avoid shame and humiliation that we cannot realize that all of that has already been provided for us. Our job is to simply look to Jesus and do whatever it is he shows up to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. We're going to start our time of reflection and prayer. We'll, we'll take up an